Hello. One of the things that, one of the reasons that I love so much podcasting is that I can do two things at once. And multitasking means that this will happen. And today's multitasking is one of my favorites because I have my granddaughter, Athena, on my lap getting ready for a nap. And she is going to listen to the story. We're reading chapter two of North to Freedom. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the first chapter. For a long time, David continued to sit and gaze upon the lovely scenery that lay before him. He knew he had much to do, but just then he was too preoccupied to think about it. His resolve to go on living seemed to have pushed everything else out of his mind, and he could not take his eyes off what he was looking at. Surely this was what one had eyes for, not for the ugly, dark, gray, oppressive buildings of the camp, or the endless, flat, bare ground that stretched away dull, brown, and empty as far as eye could see. One had eyes to gaze upon beauty, and David looked again and again upon the blueness of the sea, upon the coastline curving along its shore. He saw bright colors of the landscape, its variegated greens intermingled with gold and red, fade into one another toward the horizon until everything melted into the blue of sea and sky far away over the mountains. David looked down at his own hand lying in the grass, and knew at once what he was going to do first. The grass was green, although summer was far advanced, so there must be water not very far away. He looked first at the sun, then at his compass, and then at the sun again. It was very early. He still had a good hour before he needed to find a hiding place for the day. He took hold of his bundle and jumped up. There was water. A little lazy runnel glinting in the sunlight in the midst of a much wider riverbed, which wound among the trees and bushes where he could hide if anyone came along. David had his clothes off in no time. He had only a shirt and a pair of trousers kept up with a string that the night's soaking had made remarkably stiff. He laid his trousers in the water and put a stone on top to prevent them from floating away. Then he soaked his shirt thoroughly and opened his bundle. He stood there a moment, soap in hand. Sometimes, when they first arrived in camp, they were quite white and clean all over with no smell about them. He hardly dared try. Then he made an attempt, beginning with his hand. It worked. Almost. David scrubbed away until he was in a sweat. He picked up his shirt to rub himself with, and then he got on much better. He had thought dirt was much more difficult to get off. Then he remembered the sea. Being wet through all night must have helped considerably. His head was a bit of a problem, but David would not give up. He was going to get all that dirt off. All that remained reminded him of the camp, the smell of its inmates. He lay right down, dipping his head in the water so that his arm, his hair was thoroughly wet rubbed soap all over it until his arms grew tired, then ducked again and rubbed away with his shirt until his hair no longer felt sticky. He turned cold, but he took no notice. 
His one thought was to be quite, quite clean. His shirt gradually took on a brighter color. And then he set about his trousers as well. They too became brighter. Finally, he sat down with his knife and whittled away at a twig until he had a sharp point of clean wood. He pricked himself a couple times in the process, but in the end his nails were clean, toenails included. The sun glistened on a drop of water as it fell from his hand to his knee. David wiped it off, but it left no tide mark. There was no more dirt to rub away. He took a deep breath and shivered. He was David. Everything else was washed away. The camp, its smell, its touch, and now he was David, his own master, free. Free as long as he could remain so. David took a look around. It would not do to go on sitting where he was. A little higher up the hill he caught sight of a house among the trees, and a little farther down lay the road. There would soon be people about, and he must fi first find a safe hiding place. He followed a stream a little way, then turned off and went straight down toward the coast. The going was steep, but David's tough-skinned feet were used to finding places where he could get a good foothold. His body was lithe and quick, and he found no difficulty in keeping his balance. Just before he came to the road, he stopped irresolutely. He could hide in the undergrowth down there, but that meant he would have to lie flat all day. And when he was not sleeping, it would be very irksome to lie in roughly the same position all the time. Now that he was close to the road, he could see that there were houses at regular intervals along both sides of it, not right on it but a little above or below with gates leading onto it. Beautiful houses, pink and pale yellow and white, with gaily painted doors and green trees and climbing plants growing on their walls. But for that very reason, they spelled danger. Where there were houses, there were people. A little further on, the ground fell away so steeply from the road that there were no houses for some distance. It looked as if he would have to cross over. His heart began to beat quickly. The road wound among the hills, and you could not see much of it at a time, because it kept bending sharply around the spurs. Even if he were certain the road was clear at the moment, someone might come along just as he began to cross. Not cars, nor people walking on the hard surface, for David's hearing was good. But if anyone were walking on the grass verge, he would not be able to hear him until he was right on top of him. Was it all to only last a single morning? His beautiful surroundings? His desire to live? Was it all to be taken from him again by a single stranger coming along now or in a half hour's time? But if he stayed where he was, his danger would be just as great. Among the trees, something was growing low on the ground in long rows. It must have been planted there to grow in such straight lines. And someone might come along to tend it. Something brightly colored, not yellow nor red, but orange, caught his eye in the green grass. It was round and rather soft. David picked it up without thinking and walked the last few yards to the road. The morning was still young and everywhere it was quiet in the sunlight. 
There was no one to be seen. There was only the stranger David knew might be coming along just around the nearest spur of rock. He crossed the road, not slowly nor hurriedly. Afterwards, when his heart had stopped beating so fast, he realized that his decision had changed everything. Ever since the night he had found the bundle lying under the tree, as the man had told him it would be, his feet had carried him along, deciding the way for him. This time it was he who had made the decision. His feet had not wanted to take the risk of crossing the road, and he had mastered them and forced them to do it. The thought gave David a warm feeling of strength and freedom. From now on he would think for himself and make his own decisions, and his feet and hands and body would be his servants to do his bidding. Down, right by the edge of the water, he would be sheltered from the road, and the nearest house was some way off. David did not think anyone would be able to see him from there, but he was not sure. And it was necessary to be sure. Over on the next headland, he could see a kind of cave. If he could get over there, he would be safe for the day. But there was a narrow ravine between him and the cave, and it was too far for him to jump across. David put his bundle down and stretched his leg over the edge, feeling about with his foot for some support. But it was very steep and slippery. Only a yard separated him from the best hiding place he had ever seen. I will get over, he said to himself. It must be possible. There must be some way. Perhaps he could find a big stone and drop it into the cleft so that he could clamber across. But struggle as he would, he could not budge the only boulder that looked big enough. He would not give in, however, until he, fi re until he finally realized that he could not move it and was only wasting his strength to no purpose. If he had a rope, but there was nothing he could make it fast to on the other side, and the only thing he had that at all resembled a rope was a bit of string around his trousers. Then something caught his eye a little further down on his own side of the ravine, a wooden packing case, or rather a plank from one. David suppressed his excitement. It was not big enough, he told himself. Of course, it would not be big enough. But he ought to try just to make sure. When his heart was beating normally again, he set off after it. The plank was long enough. He could lay it across like a bridge, and he could pull it in after he had crossed over so that no one could follow. But was it stout enough? He found two small stones and laid them one under each end of the plank. Then he stepped carefully onto it. It creaked a little, but it would take his weight. It was very bare on the other side. Bare, but safe. And there was room enough to lie down. Because of the rock projecting over the shallow cave, he would be in shadow most of the time. He could see a short stretch of the road above without being seen himself, and he could see the whole coastline toward the east. David took his wet trousers off and spread them and his shirt out to dry in the sun. Then he unpacked his bundle and arranged his possessions neatly by his side. His compass, his knife, his bottle, the chunk of bread the man on board the ship had given him, and finally the round thing he had found. 
He held it firmly but carefully while he scratched it with his fingernail and bored his finger right through the skin. It was moist inside. He sniffed his finger and licked it. It smelled good and had a bitter sweet taste. So he took the skin right off and pulled the inside apart. It was quite easy to separate into small pieces, each like a half moon. He was hungry, and he had a bit of bread as well. He wondered if that round thing were fit to eat. Taking a bite, he chewed and swallowed and waited to see what would happen. But nothing happened, nothing except that it tasted good. It did not make him ill. David ate half the pieces and chewed a bit more bread. Then he tried the orange-colored peel, but that tasted sharp and unpleasant. He tried to push the thought away, but it kept returning. I don't know anything. How can I stay free when I don't know what everybody else knows? I don't even know what's good to eat and what's poisonous. The only food I know about is porridge and bread and soup. For the moment he lost courage and felt quite cast down. Why had he not talked to the others in the camp? listened to their conversation, and asked about the world outside. Not about food, of course, for there was a rule in the camp that no one might talk about food. For once, it was not one of their rules, but one made by the prisoners themselves. When you had nothing but bread and porridge and not enough of those, you did not want to talk about the kind of food you used to have when you were free. But there were other things. He could have asked about. As long as Johannes had been with him, he had asked questions all the time. But he was only a little boy then, and had asked all sorts of things he had no use for now. He looked out over the blue sea and down along the coast, full of bright color and sunshine, and clenched his teeth. He would. It was no use sitting there, thinking of all the things he ought to have done differently when he was in the camp. That could not be altered now. He must think about Johannes and try to recall all they had talked about. He must remember, too, what he had heard the other prisoners say before they had been too long in the camp to say anything more and merely let the days drag by. Sometimes he had discovered that they were trying to escape. They laid their plans carefully weighing the pros and cons, calculating what they thought were, was possible, and making sure they knew where the worst dangers lay. Their attempts at escape were never successful, but that was not their fault. It was because their chances were too slender. David decided to follow their example. He would make a plan of action weighing what he knew against what he did not, and carry it out without allowing himself to be depressed by doubts or carried away by hope. On his side was the fact that, although he was very thin, he had strong, tough muscles. He had sharp eyes and ears, and he was used to doing with very little food. He stopped. Was there anything else to his credit? Yes, he was prepared for them. 
He knew their methods, the traps they set, the sudden crafty friendliness that meant they were hiding something in their pointless brutality. Oh, that meant they were hiding something. Their pointless brutality. He was familiar with treachery. He knew what death looked like. But what advantage was his knowledge of death when he was now determined to live? David frowned. Then he thought of another point in his favor. He could understand what people from different countries were talking about. Learning to do that had been a great help to him in the camp. When he could no longer pass the time, thinking of meal times and the changing of the guards, there were various languages he could learn. David counted up how many he knew. First, of course, was what they spoke. He could read that, too. Then he knew French. That was what Johannes had spoken. And besides that, German and Italian and English. He knew some Spanish and quite a bit of Hebrew. Being able to talk to the sailor who had found him on board the ship had been a great advantage. And now that he was in Italy, his knowledge of that language would be a blessing to him. David felt greatly encouraged. Perhaps he would recall other things he knew as he gradually grew accustomed to thinking again. However, there were plenty of things he knew nothing of. He knew there were maps, but he had never seen one. And he was quite ignorant of where the various countries of Europe lay or where their boundaries ran. He was not at all sure which of those countries were free. He thought there could not be many. And he'd better reckon with the possibility that they were everywhere, even in free countries. Then there was the business of food. He would have to live on what he could find. And every time he would have to risk eating something poisonous in his ignorance or passing by what was edible and so going hungry. Worst of all, there were people. If he wanted to preserve his freedom, he would have to keep right away from them. But at the same time, he realized he would have to get to know something about how people lived outside a prison camp, since an unknown danger was more dangerous than one that could be reckoned with beforehand. And so David made another decision. When it was dark, he must go into the town that lay further along the coast down by the sea. In the darkness, he could always slip into a gateway or around a street corner, as he had discovered in Salonica. But he would have to go while there were people about in the streets, so that he could find out how they lived. Perhaps a boy among a crowd of people would appear less suspicious than a boy quite alone in a town where everyone was asleep. In any case, it would not be as dangerous now as it might be later, for no one could yet know where to look for him. Perhaps they would not look for him at all. Here again, David ran into the blank wall of his own ignorance. He did not know who he was, did not even know from what country he had come. He had always lived in the camp, and even Johannes, who knew so many things, had not been able to find out anything about him for the simple reason 
that no one knew anything. David wondered what he looked like. In the man's hut there had been a mirror, but it, it was hung too high. David thought at one time that perhaps he was Jewish. As a rule, the people they imprisoned were those who wanted to decide for themselves what they should believe and be free to write books and articles about it. But that could not apply to him. Jews, on the other hand, were sometimes imprisoned just because they did not like Jews. They said they did, but it was not true. But Johannes had said he was sure David was not Jewish. Obviously, one could not always find out why they had arrested people. And if someone had happened to find him somewhere and taken him along to the camp when he was quite small, then it might be that he was not of sufficient consequence for them to make any particular effort to recapture him. But he could not be sure of that. And so it would be safer to assume that he was important to them. David realized that he must have a story. He knew from his experiences in the camp that it might be a matter of life and death to have a good story and stick to it, however much one might be questioned. In the evening, when he had seen the kind of life people lived, he might perhaps be able to hit upon a story he could make use of if anyone questioned him. Not that he intended that anyone should speak to him if he could avoid it, but it was best to be prepared. No one took any notice of him. While he was on the road, a man had turned around to look at him, but David had told himself, you mustn't look as if you're afraid. You mustn't look afraid. And had gone on his way quite calmly. And down here in the town, no one at all turned to look at him. It was a small town, not like Salonika. The streets were very small and narrow and hilly. There was talk everywhere. People walking along with baskets, and parcels, people standing in shops where the lights were lit, all were talking. The first time David was aware of it, he could hardly bring himself to move on. Almost everybody was laughing. It was not the ugly laughter he was used to when they laughed at the prisoners. It sounded pleasant, even beautiful, as if they were all content with life and felt friendly toward one another. David knew, of course, that his impression could not be right, but perhaps there were not so many of them here in Italy, or perhaps there were just not any in this town. And the people were beautiful. David had seen good-looking people before. They were often good-looking when they first arrived in the camp. But only Johannes had preserved a beauty of expression right up to the time of his death. And the few women David had seen looked quite different from those here. They had been hard of face, as they always were, and, and yes, as if there were scarcely any difference between them and their men. But here they were beautiful, their hair long, black, and waving, many of them with smooth, sun-tanned faces, and all dressed in beautiful clothes of many colors, like the sea and the trees and the golden fruit. David saw the same fruit again, a whole pile of it in a great basket outside a shop. Arancia, it was called. David suddenly recalled a German word, 
Apfelsinen. He had heard of it after all. If only the letters were not so difficult to read. Johannes had taught him the shapes of the letters they used in other countries, but that was so long ago. If only he had a book so that he could practice reading those letters. Going down into the town had been a good move. No one took any notice of him, and he could learn a lot by looking in the shops. He could find out what food looked like and many other things that he had never and many other things too that he had never seen before and did not know the use of. They had an enormous number of possessions, these people. David felt quite dizzy with looking at so many things, and he stopped a moment. In front of him, a man and a woman were walking along, and as they talked and laughed together, they were eating something they had bought from a shop. When they finished, the woman threw away the newspaper that had been wrapped around what they had been eating. His heart beating faster, David picked it up in the dark. There was often something printed on the paper things were wrapped in. He hurried to the nearest light. Yes, there was printing on it, something he could practice reading tomorrow. When it grew light, he dared not stand still too long outside a brightly lit shop. Besides, he did not feel too well. He had a headache and felt sick. He'd better go back to his rock now. He looked up and discovered he was standing in a large square. At first he was frightened, for he felt much safer in the narrow streets. But then he forgot his fear as he saw in front of him on the other side of the square a very big building with what he took to be a searchlight on top. A prison camp? For a moment David's heart stopped beating, so panic-stricken was he. Then he noticed a large bell hanging in a tower. A church. If there's a bell, then it's a church, he remembered Johannes had once told him. But he did not tell him that a church could be so beautiful. Its walls built of different kinds of stone that formed, in that formed intricate and lovely patterns. Its great doors approached by a magnificent flight of steps. David looked at the church for a long time. He felt it had some meaning for him, but he could not tell what. His head felt very heavy, as if it had been running all night long. He must return to his hideout. Slowly, he turned his back upon the square and went down to the narrow, brightly lit streets again. He stopped outside a shop where they baked round, flat loaves with what he had learned were called tomatoes on top. He was hungry. Not very hungry at the moment, but he would be by the morning. He had once seen a guard shoot a prisoner for trying to steal his food. Perhaps in the morning he would find another orange. He turned to go. Hi. Want one, eh? David turned around with a start. The man was standing in the open doorway offering him one of the loaves. David automatically put out his hand, and then he quickly withdrew it. A trap. He would take the bread and then the man would fetch them. He looked up into the man's face and saw it was just like the sailors. The same slightly stupid expression. The same good-natured eyes. David hesitated. Perhaps he would not have him arrested. There were some good people. Johannes had told him so. 
and he had heard the same thing from other prisoners. They had often spoken of those who had helped them and hidden them for long periods when they were after them. The man laughed in a hearty, friendly way, the way everybody laughed here. Well, perhaps the young fellow isn't hungry, he said. Yes, yes I am, David answered. Thank you very, very much. He took the bread and off he went with quick, unhurried steps. The man frowned and looked at him a little puzzled. Then he shrugged his shoulders right up to his ears and let them fall again, as if he were shaking something off, and went back to his loaves. Never in the whole of David's life had a day passed so quickly as did the next one. Still free, he had gotten back to his rocks again, eaten half the bread the man had given him, and lain down to sleep. When he awoke, it was day, and everything was just as warm and beautiful in the bright sunshine as it had been on the previous day. He had run up to the little stream to wash before anyone was about, and even the fact that his soap had grown much thinner from overmuch use the day before did not really trouble him. Perhaps it was because he had washed his shirt and trousers with it as well. He decided to make do with washing his hands and feet and face that day, and to go sparingly with his precious soap. Then he ran downhill again, nearly forgetting in his eagerness to get back to his piece of paper, to look carefully up and down the road before he crossed it. That must not happen again. He made himself count to a hundred before he picked up his paper in order to remind himself how important it was never to do anything without thinking. The scrap of newspaper was difficult to read. The evening before he had read several notices in the town, but this was in proper sentences with many words together. David murmured the names of the letters to himself, first one by one, and then running them together three or four at a time. And after a bit, the sounds began to take shape as words he already knew. Then he began reading to himself what was on the paper. On the whole, it proved disappointing. Some of it was about things you could buy, but none of it was any use to a boy escaping from prison. There was something about motor cars, and the last bit was about a king. But at that point the paper was torn across, and David could not even find out where the king came from. From what he had heard in the camp, David had gathered that the countries that had kings were free, and their people had no need to be frightened of them. But there were not many countries like that, and the knowledge was not much use to him since he did not know where those countries were. However, his belief that he might perhaps avoid capture seemed to have grown stronger since the day before. He had seen so much in the town that he knew deep within himself he would, not, he would have to go down there again. But he would not yet admit it to himself. He was pulled both ways. He had a passionate desire to go back and learn more about what things were like outside the camp. And... At the same time, he was afraid he might forget to hide his fears. As long as it was still daylight, he would think no more about paying another visit to the town. He had plenty of other things to occupy him. 
all that he had seen the previous day, all that he wanted to know and would have to find out for himself. And there was his piece of paper. Even if it contained nothing of any use to him, he could always read the letters, comparing the words as they appeared in print with what the way they sounded when they were spoken, until he was sure he could read properly. And in between times, when his head began to buzz with the weight of too many problems that seemed to have no solution, there were his beautiful surroundings that he would never tire of looking at. The blue sea, stretching farther than I could reach, and the land with its ever-changing coastline, the green hills, the bare red rocks, the brightly colored houses gleaming like fruit here and there in the sun. When evening came, David went down to the town again, and again the next evening, evening and the next, and each time he learned something new, enough to occupy his thoughts all day long in his rocky hiding place. And although he knew there must be many things he had no idea of, this was not brought home to him until the third evening when he saw a little baby. A woman was sitting on her doorstep. There was not much light, and so David slackened his pace when he saw something moving in her lap. It was very tiny, and it was alive, but it was not an animal. It slowly dawned upon him that it must be a very young baby. David was fascinated. He could not drag himself away, and yet he dared not stay there. Then the woman laughed quite softly, as if one should not laugh out loud in the presence of so small a child. And she said to him, Do you like him? Don't you think he's a beautiful boy? Hesitatingly, David took a step forward as he looked up and down the street. But there was no one to notice that the woman had spoken to him. He stepped right up to her and bent his head down to see better. The woman lifted the baby up as if she wanted it to stand in her lap, but it could not. The child was such a tiny little thing that it could not even support itself on its own two legs. Such tiny hands, smaller than the box he kept his matches in. But its eyes were big and black with long, thick lashes and they looked straight into his face as if they were quite ignorant of fear. David's own eyes smarted, as if he wanted to cry. What did you do with a child as small as that? A child that could not even run, that did not even know you had to be afraid. What dreadful things could happen to a little child like that? For the first time, David spoke to someone of his own accord. He had to. She could know nothing about it, this woman who was able to laugh. He looked into her smiling face and said, trembling with anxiety, Oh, you must look after him. You mustn't forget him for a single moment. He's so terribly small that he can do nothing for himself, and, and one blow might crush him. You must take care all the time or else he'll never grow big enough to look after himself. He stopped, frightened. The woman was not smiling anymore. 
She looked as if she were afraid herself now. Then she recovered and smiling again, said he could depend upon it. She would take good care of the child. She spoke as if she would comfort him, and yet it was not he who stood in need of comfort. It was that poor little child that could not protect itself. David could not bear to stay in the town any longer that evening. He ran all the way back to his rocks, and even when at last he fell asleep, he found no relief, for he dreamed all night long of the terrible things that could happen to such a tiny baby. And during his dreams, he kept half waking up with the feeling that he was too stupid and knew too little to do anything about it. For the first time in his life, David knew that he could feel fear for others. But when at last he was fully awake, the sun was shining just as it had done the day before. His first thought was to wonder if the baby was still safe. He ought not to have left it. The woman clearly had no idea how dangerous it was for a child to be so small, and he, David, who knew the danger, had left it unprotected. It was David's first encounter with his conscience. What was the right thing to do? He had not really any doubt. He realized vaguely that one was always quite sure what the right thing was. And it was most important to do what one knew was right. For otherwise the day might come when one could no longer tell the difference between right and wrong. And then one would be like them. David slowly got ready to go back into the town to find the baby and look after it. He now wanted to go on living, for there was such a mass of things he wanted to know before they caught him again, but not if it meant being like them. He had already laid the plank in position when he seemed to hear a voice say, Think what you're doing. Remember what you promised yourself. You are never going to do anything without thinking carefully first. David sat down again. There could be no doubt about it. The right thing was to look after the child. David frowned. But could he? Would he, who knew so much less about life than anyone else, be any good at it? Someone had to look after the child but he was not necessarily the one to do it. Perhaps, after all, the young woman could do it better now that he had warned her how important it was. Perhaps she was the baby's mother. Most people had mothers, and mothers always cared for their children, even when the children were grown up. With a sense of relief, David pulled the plank back again and told himself he had been a fool. That was what happened when you did not stop to think. In the camp, thinking would have made life unbearable. But when you were free, it was necessary, though something of a strain when you were not used to it. The most important thing of all, he felt quite sure, was to do what you knew to be right. But at the same time, you must not forget to think carefully before you acted. 
Just suppose he had made a mistake with the baby because he did not know what it needed. David decided he would think about it as little as possible. It still pained him to remember how small and helpless the baby was, but since he could not look after it properly, it would be best to forget about it. But how was it that he had not seen a baby before? There must have been babies about on other evenings he had spent in the town. The thought worried him. There might have been other things he had passed by without noticing. Johannes had once said he was very intelligent. He had not meant David to hear him, and he had looked very sad as he spoke. But that was probably because it was best not to think about anything in the camp. But if he were intelligent, how was it things could happen under his nose without his being aware of them? perhaps because he was trying to learn too much at once. And yet he knew he had to. David had hit upon a good story. During his second evening, he had read something on a wall about a circus. He understood it was a kind of theater that traveled about. If anyone questioned him, he would say he came from one and was going to rejoin it somewhere else somewhere far enough away to prevent people finding out immediately if it were true. But he had no occasion to try out his story. He went down to the town again during the evening. He was gradually getting to know it inside out, the narrow, crooked streets, the open space down by the seafront, the square where the church stood. He always went there last of all, so that on the way back to the rock he would have it fresh in his mind, the beautiful wall with its patterns of variegated stone. He had not summoned up enough courage to enter the church, although he would have dearly loved to see what it looked like inside. That evening, he took care to avoid the street where the woman sat with her baby. He was sure now that she must know better than he how to look after it. But he would rather not be reminded that the child was too young to understand the dangers that beset it. There were plenty of other streets. David would sometimes stand in shadows outside a shop and listen to the conversation within. It was easy enough, for they always talked very loudly, with frequent bursts of laughter. In that way he learned what many things were used for, things that were strange to him but seemed to be taken for granted by the people around him. He had not yet heard anyone talk about them. Sometimes the fact that they were, there were obviously none of them in the town led him to be rather less careful. He always walked on if anyone looked at him, but he sometimes came very near to forgetting his fears, and he quite openly filled his bottle at the pump down by the seafront and accepted several loaves of bread from the man who made them. At first, he would stand for a long time hidden in the shadows outside the shop, listening to the baker's conversation with his customers. But it was never about them. And he never asked David any questions, except whether he was hungry. Then he would give him a loaf and a friendly smile. And so it was almost out of habit that David now hid in the dark outside and listened. That evening, the man was talking of someone called Guglio, 
and the good catch he had had. For a moment, David's heart stood still with fear. Then he realized they were talking not of people, but of fish caught at sea. He stood there a little longer, forgetting in his relief to listen. Suddenly he heard the man say, Who's that boy that comes here every evening for a loaf? Do you know? What boy? A thin, ragged boy, but always very clean. He looks a bit foreign. David pressed himself flat against the wall and stood there as if glued to the spot. Another man was speaking now, who spoke differently from the rest, more after David's own fashion. I've seen a strange boy every evening this week. He stands and looks at the church. I assumed he'd come over for the harvest. Signor Missiani takes on a number of casual workers at this time. Then a woman said something. No one's come yet, Padre. Teresa would have told me. I've seen the boy too. It must be the same one. He doesn't look like the others. And he always moves off when you look at him. He's got very strange-looking eyes. In what way strange? That was the one they called Padre, speaking again. Padre meant priest. I've only seen him standing in the dark, on the other side of the square. Does he look as if he's on the downward path? No, no. I don't know about that, Padre, but he's a strange boy. If you smile at him, he doesn't smile back. He doesn't run off either. He just turns and walks away. And his eyes, they're so quiet looking. Perhaps we should get a hold of him and ask him where he comes from. David heard no more. With no more sound than a puff of wind, he was down the street and inside the first open door, through a long dark passage and out again in another street. Never before had he found it so difficult to walk along calmly as if he felt no fear. He increased his speed out of the town, out to the rocks. He must get away once before they began looking for him. Get away at, at once before they began looking for him. They might be sending for them already. David waited a long time, a very long time, hiding by the side of the road, before he ventured scrambling down to his hiding place. The last two evenings he had left his bundle there, and now he must take it with him. But first he had to make sure no one was following. When he reached the safety of the rocks, he lay down, but not to sleep, only because his legs felt as if they would not bear his weight any longer. As he lay there, he could see the lights from the town below, they looked beautiful in the dark. But he had been right when he sensed there was danger there. He must get away this very night. The thought filled him with gloom. He had begun to feel that it was his town, that the rock belonged to him. He knew every little irregularity in its surface, and every morning when he undid his bundle, he would arrange his things in the same way. The little stream higher up across the road had been his alone, and every morning he had found an orange. All the beauty of the place had been his, the sea and the coastline that curved along its shores. All the beautiful colors, the blues and greens and red, 
and the gay houses, brightly colored, too, and gleaming like fruit in the sunlight. Before he had come to this place, he had known about nothing but death. There he had learned to live, to be the master of his own fate. He had learned what it felt like to wash in clean water in the sunshine until he was clean himself, and what it felt like to satisfy his hunger with food that tasted good. He had learned the sound of laughter that was free from cruelty. He had learned the meaning of beauty, and now he must leave it and never return. David cried, but not for long. He sat up and looked once more at the lights of the town. He had also learned to think again without being afraid of doing it. And he could go on thinking. He was now his own master. And if he thought about everything carefully, as clearly and sensibly as he could, and remembered all he had learned in this place, then freedom might be his for a long time yet. He had been right in supposing that they were everywhere, even where he was now. But he had also found it true that some people were good and kind. The woman had not informed against him, nor the man who had given him bread. And if they no longer dared to pretend that they had not seen him about, then it was his own fault for staying there too long. In the future, he must never stay in one place longer than one evening. He must continue to avoid people as much as possible, and he must remember not to look at them. David wished he knew what was so strange about his eyes. And what did they mean when they said they were quiet? Perhaps one day he might come across a mirror and find out what he looked like. David sighed a little. He might find it difficult to remember about his eyes all the time. But a boy could not very well disguise himself. Grown men could grow beards or shave them off, and if you had money you could change your clothes or wear glasses or dye your hair. But when you were a boy, with neither beard nor money, it was no good thinking about disguising yourself. It would not help very much anyway, if it were your eyes that people recognized. David packed everything except his compass into his bundle and stood up. When he had crossed over the plank, he drew it after him and carried it right up to the roadway so that no one would see where he had been living. He stood still for a moment and looked down at the lights of the town. If the people down there had been really good, like those who risked everything to hide others from them, they would have let him stay. David turned his back on the lights and set off quietly up the mountain slope toward the north.